We do want to take a moment to recognise what's been going on in the world in the past couple of weeks. Our last episode did go out after the start of the Black Lives Matter protest, but was recorded beforehand, so there was no note about it in there. We would like to go on the record as saying that we are entirely in support of the movement for Black Lives and wholeheartedly agree that Black Lives Matter and... There are entrenched systemic issues that need to be changed throughout the entire fabric of the country. And not just this country. Yes. Being British, other countries too. <laughs> yeah. Um, police brutality. I, somebody, I think, in Brazil posted about like that police brutality is a global issue. Like, it's not, oh. just, it's not just us. It's not just the UK. It's in a lot of other places. And we, as a society, need to stop excusing it and carving policy pathways and enabling systems that continue to devalue and endanger the lives of black people and other people of color, but particularly black people. And not just killing, but also mass incarceration of disproportionately black people um, is just another face of that larger problem of us not valuing black lives sufficiently um, or equally to other lives. We're recording this quite close to Atlanta, um, and I have no concept of time anymore, but a day or two after the killing of Richard Brooks for being drunk near a Wendy's. So we fully support all the protests. We hope that they continue going on. Nope, we, encourage you, we encourage you to donate to your local bail funds and the Equal Justice Initiative and any other, and just the movement for Black Lives directly, like, there are people doing this work in your communities, and we encourage you to support them. We'll put a couple of links to places in the show notes. Also, if uh, your community now has some extra space in a town square or a park or something for, say, a monument or memorial, uh, Equal Justice Initiative has a uh, amazing project um, to... Uh, acknowledge the history of racial terror lynching in this country and there is a memorial waiting for your county to claim and uh yeah write your your local officials to get that ball rolling because it's it's an important thing to do to acknowledge and really reckon with the past of this country and the impact that it's still having on communities today We'll put links to all of that in the show notes. If you want to know more about our views on the matter, I did write a piece fairly early on in the protests. You're welcome to go and read that. It has some links to some places you can donate and petitions that you can support. But I would prefer that you went and found voices of people of colour who can speak with more authority on it than I can. And there are a lot of them. Defund the police. Yes, we also agree with defunding the police and reorganizing our city budgets to more accurately re reflect the kind of community we want to live in. There's a lot of confusion going on around that discussion at the moment. Go and read the manifestos of the people who are talking about it. Don't believe what is being said about it by certain right-wing groups. Um, it's not about there being no protection for you if something terrible happens. It's about making sure that there's the right protection mm -hmm. and that less terrible things need to happen. It's about making sure that there's more than just the police to call whenever anything is disrupting anyone. Like, police are called to situations where it's someone with a mental illness or a developmental delay um, or who's drunk is being a nuisance or 
whatever, and the best person to handle that is probably a social worker or some other community service that is actually set up to deal with that situation nonviolently. But sending someone with a gun just means someone gets shot and, well, that's where we are and it sucks. And no one should have to live like that and no one should have to be explaining to their young kids that they're not seen as people. They're automatically seen as a threat around the age of 12, which is the reality for black children in this country. And it's horrible. We could um, talk on this for a very long time. We could do an entire podcast about this. However, we're not the best people to be speaking about it. Um, as I say, go and find people who are directly affected by it and hear what they have to say. The stories that you can find just scrolling through Twitter on some of the hashtags at the moment are eye-opening, even if you thought that you were aware of what the situation was like. So we'll leave this here and we'll go on with the rest of the episode. Hello and welcome to Unramblings, a podcast about stories and storytelling. I'm Mark. And I'm Charlene. And this week we are trying out another recording space. Last time's closet experience was interesting. Apparently we were kind of loud and it was really uncomfortable to sit on the floor for two hours. Uh, So this time we are in our reading nook. Is this a reading nook? Yep, kind of. It was our dining room two weeks ago, so now it's a reading nook. Hopefully this will work. We'll keep trying things and... This is nicer than sitting in the closet, I think. Yeah, I don't think the sound will be quite as good, but I think it will be a lot more tolerable for us physically. And we won't be yelling straight into the microphone. Yeah, that's a problem. Sorry to everyone during the Glengarry Glen Ross Or both of you that listened to that episode. (laughs) This week we are talking about The Last of Us. Yep. The 2013 video game from the Naughty Dog Studio was a personal favourite of mine, and uh, we are recording this on the Monday before the long-awaited sequel comes out, which I may have ordered a more expensive than I should have collector's edition of, because I am sucked in by Game Studios. Anyway! uh, It's one of your favourite games. Give yourself a break. Yeah. Our episode on Horizon Zero Dawn was extremely popular, and that meant that I could persuade Sean to play my favourite video game with me. Um, So thank you to everyone who listened to that. Speaking of Horizon Zero Dawn, the launch trailer for the PlayStation 5 just happened on Saturday? It was Saturday, right? It was certainly a day or a time. It happened recently. Um, And it looks like the sequel to Horizon Zero Dawn is going to be pretty awesome as well. So that's uh, something to be excited about as well. Horizon Forbidden West. I'm I'm so excited about the new Ratchet and Clank. I'm just a large child. It's fine. Let yourself enjoy stuff. Stop beating yourself up about having fun with things. Uh... Maybe they'll do an expensive collector's edition. <laughs> oh my god. I mean, we can't get all of those for every game we like. I did not even consider getting, for any period of time, the collector's edition PS4 to go with the Last of Us 2. Oh, there's another collector's edition I forgot to mention, which has a collector's edition PS4. It's a whole games console, just for the one game. You didn't consider it at all. You just know about it. I mean, I saw it and I briefly thought about it and thought, I mean, it is a good deal on a game console, but PS5 has just been announced, so that would be done. The controller, on the other hand, that I had to convince myself not to get. Okay, um, I have no idea how much of this will keep in here, but let's move on. So we will obviously be spoiling the entirety of the plot for The Last of Us. There's certainly some odd turns that the story takes if you have not played it and think you might. Go play it, it's a great game. You can knock it out in a week, even if you're doing other things, I know, because we just did. We'll also be discussing in passing the uh, DLC chapter Left Behind, and we will most likely 
talk a little bit about what we think might happen in The Last of Us 2, uh, which might include some discussion of uh, the one launch trailer and gameplay trailer that I saw about two years ago. I have not seen more recent trailers because I would rather just play the game. All right. If we have any other spoiler warnings or content warnings, we'll drop which those. We yeah. will. We, we will we have will. content warnings. There, there are going to be some content warnings. Yeah, there's there's some fucked up stuff in this game. We'll but, drop those in right here. Yes. Hello. Very light on the spoiler warnings this week. There are a couple of passing mentions to Horizon Zero Dawn, but nothing really plot relevant. On the other hand, we, as promised, have a lot more content warnings. We don't get too in-depth with most of these topics, but they do come up. Mercy killing, pedophilia, cannibalism, and suicide. We do have a bit more of a discussion about racially based violence, um, murder, and torture in general. So be warned if those are topics you're particularly sensitive to. Okay, and back to the past. Welcome back. As you can tell, we have a cheery episode ahead of us. Okay, brief summary of work. Okay, so The Last of Us is a story that on its surface is about a zombie outbreak that has been going on for about 20 years. We get a little bit of a shot before, and then most of it is in the 20 years after the outbreak period, and is about a smuggler that is asked to take a 14-year-old girl across the country, which, I mean, civilization is down to a few cities here and there, and then bands of bandits in other places... The sort of rebellion force, the Fireflies, are asking him to take this girl, smuggle him past all the institutional, like, pseudo-government type of people, and get her across the country safely. Uh, it transpires that she is actually immune to the uh, fungus that causes the zombification, with the hopes of being able to create a cure by doing tests and stuff on her. The story, I would argue, is not a terribly original one. Um, it's barely expected what's going to happen in it but where I think the story really is strong is how it is told and the story of the characters that take place within it. Joel, the male lead uh, that you play as for the majority of the game has lost his daughter at the very outbreak of the virus um, after she was actually killed by the police or army or whoever had been brought in to try and stop the outbreak spreading, which has coloured his view of institutions and also puts him in a very opposition when he's trying to help this girl get across the country that's about the same age. So the interplay between the two characters there, there's a lot of good interplay. I think it's very well drawn and told throughout the game. Okay, so shall we get into it? Sure. Okay, so I think that we've got our list of stuff to talk about and I think we've sort of broken that down into talking about sort of the institutions and the culture in the game and then some of the larger moral questions that are raised. And we'll start off with the world. Um, yeah, well, first, before we get into it, actually, I just had a thought that I didn't bring up when we were planning this, but I've told you before about the eschatology course that I took in college, right? Anthropology the... of the End of the World. You have, yeah. And the entire focus of that class was looking at different depictions of what constitutes the end of the world through religious texts and entertainment different kinds of stories, and analyzing the culture through that lens. Because any story about the end of the world, whether it's a religious story or one that's strictly meant for entertainment, is going to tell you a lot about what people think of as the world and what's important to them and you know what 
what really is the end of the world. I mean, it's rarely the, like, heat death of the universe, you know. Most of the time, it's the end of civilization as one particular culture knows it, or the end of particular institutions, things like that. The breakdown of order. It's not actually the world per se. And by looking at the details of what those kinds of ideas of the end of the world look like, you can tell a lot about what's important. And so I think that's something I'd like to keep in mind as we're talking about the world that's built here and the messaging that we're seeing in the storytelling. Okay. I think what we see here is similar to what we've been seeing more and more in our cultural representations of what a post-apocalypse world would look like, which is that people say, oh, the day that the world ended, or, you know, the world... I mean, the world hasn't ended. I mean, people are still there, as you say. What they are talking about is the breakdown of the civilization that they knew. I don't think that they ever say that the world has ended in the game. I might be wrong, but there's certainly a sense that it has ended and now you're just sort of surviving. I think that they definitely do, in the story, imply that the world ended because the response of to people who still have hope for a cure is so dismissive and there's there are definitely characters who say things to the effect of we're never going to get back to what we had. Yeah. Like, that world is over. And there are other people who talk about it in a more nuanced way, like you live, like Ellie, who says, you lived in weird times or something like that. And she's thinking about it not as a different world, but as a different time. But other people do seem to kind of view the world post the Cordyceps outbreak as a new world and refer to it as, like, this is the new reality kind of a thing. Well, I think it is split along age. I mean, there's not very many young characters that we meet in the game. But the ones that are going, this is strange, this concept of what your world was like before this, are Sam and Ellie, Mm -hmm. who are both born after the outbreak. I think that's a really good point, because you're right, like, the world only ended for the people who were there to experience the transition. Their world, every, but again, it's what I was saying before, it's not actually the world, it's their perception of the world yeah. that ended as it had been to that point. And for the younger characters born after that momentous, like, that historic situation, the, the world, that's the world they were born into. So their world hasn't ended. This is the only world they've ever known, which is very different. Which is interesting when you look at, like, how bleak their perception of that is, looking at, like, the end of the Left Behind DLC, where you have Ellie and her friend Riley, who have gone into this mall mm-hmm. and get bitten. Ellie, it turns out, later is immune, but Riley is not, and they decide to wait it out and, quote, lose their minds together. But the response to being bitten by one of them is, there's a million ways we should have died before now, It's just sort of, this is what it was, we were always going to die young, we were never going to grow old. Uh, There's even a mention that there's a character who's died of a heart attack, and they respond to that with, how often does someone die of natural causes these days? Like, it's sort of seen Mm -hmm. as a, oh, well, you know, I mean, it could be worse. Like, they actually Mm -hmm. got to die of natural causes, well, that's great. We should all be so lucky, kind of a thing. Yeah. It's an expectation, and I think you see, I think you see it reflected in the conversations between Tess and Joel early on, that they're doing what they need to do to survive, and they've just sort of accepted that that's the world that they live in, and they will do that, and then at some point, they'll die. Mm -hmm. 
and by contrast, there's Tommy, who, and Marlene, the Fireflies in general, who are not content with that. They are not going to settle for the best they can scrape out in the Cordyceps-infected world. They want to keep fighting for the possibility of a better future, even if it seems really hard and even if it seems impossible, because they know it won't happen unless someone is working toward it. And, you know, if there's even a chance, like, they're committed to doing that. And uh, Tommy eventually becomes disillusioned with the things that they're doing to try and, if not bring back the past world, like a better, like a pre-Cordyceps world, at least try to get to a better point than they're in now where they can start to gain ground. But he still wants to have something more than the hard scrabble smuggling and shooting people in the back existence that he had with his brother and instead tries to form a different kind of still more constructive community where he get could get married and they fix the power plant and things like that. Right. And I think the thing is that it's more nuanced than that. Like he does still want to get back to something. He's given up on the idea of a cure. And I think really his leaving the fireflies is more like Joel casts it as, oh, he gave up on it because he gives up on everything. Mm-hmm. But I think that he is pushing against the fireflies methodology as much as anything else. They're very militaristic. Mm-hmm. We'll get into it a bit more in a bit, but there is one place where it was run by Fedra, which is the sort of militarized version of FEMA in this world, who were known for like not giving out enough rations for people and maybe hoarding it for themselves and this sort of thing. And there's a place where you find out that a group of people had worked with the Fireflies to overthrow Fedra, and then that group had also overthrown the Fireflies at the same time because they didn't want to be ordered around just by a different group of people with guns. Mm-hmm. But shall we get into um, some of the points we had on here? We've sort of done a blanket on some stuff. Sure. So I think one of the things that I wanted to talk about first was just how the story is told through the setting in so much of the game. Mm-hmm. I think that there's two main things there that sort of work in harmony with each other. One of them is just graffiti that you see around the world. You'll see Firefly logos a lot of places, but also there'll be notes of protest, effectively, that are telling you about the sort of mentality of the civilization that's going on there. And then tying that in with the artifacts that you find in the games, which vary wildly in what sort of thing they are. I mean, sometimes you're just finding a map and sometimes you're finding notes that people are leaving to each other or to themselves that are sort of detailing their own little stories. There's also a subset of the graffiti that is warnings. Mm. And I think that's important too. And sometimes the warnings are still relevant and sometimes they're not because when you spray paint something on there, like it's not like anyone's going to scrub it off after the thing you were warning about has changed. And there's that's also used for dramatic irony at at least one point when you escape an infested area and on the, the exit door, I guess, was the other people who used to live there's entrance and they have spray painted a warning on that wall and so you leave to find the warning about the situation you've just fled and it's like well that's helpful to me don't go um, in here that's infected in great i i sure won't <laughs> yeah but there are a lot more ways than just the notes and the, the graffiti that people in the past have managed to communicate what happened to them often with the way like the places that their stuff is left 
the rubble piles and barricades that have been made. Mm. Um, the like signs that aren't necessarily notes, but like there's Isha's compound, the place I was just actually talking about, that has several different points where there's like community rules, basically. And th- those really do give you a good snapshot of the kind of life that community lived and what was important to them and also like how they were raising their kids because a lot of them are guidelines about how to play safely without drawing the infected down on the group. But even things like, oh, you can't go this way because there's a dead body in a barricade because someone barricaded themselves here and then died. Like that tells you a story right there. That tells you that somebody, you know, had that experience of fleeing and trying to wait it out and didn't make it or maybe did make it out a totally different way that you then have to figure out. So there's a lot more ways that you you get all these little stories of what has happened in the areas you were in, even when they're not written down. Yeah, I mean, some of it is just something as simple as you'll find a dead body and some supplies, and just looking at what those are tells you a certain amount. I mean, if you find the body and a gun, then yeah, we, we know what happened there. With Ish's compound getting overrun and some of the things that you find going through there, you get those sort of, like, people who have been infected or know that there's no way out of that situation and there's mercy killings going on and things like that. Just the sort of story told through bodies, which is pretty gruesome, but is an interesting narrative device. Just because of the structure of the game, you've got little cutscenes that you can have every so often and conversations that they're having as they're walking through the world in between, because... Unlike so many games, you're not a lone wanderer. For the vast majority of the game, you're not alone, so you've got someone else to talk to. It's the sidekick in a novel that things can be explained to. But even then, that's only so much of the world that you can explain. So these little things that you are just are there if you want to pay attention to them. The amount of detail that has been put into telling even little bits of the world building is impressive. I mean, we were going through, there's a section that's in an old university, and there's sort of notes left by the students that you can pick up and read but there's also just you can look at the walls and there's clipboards and there's a little memorial put up to those that were lost and things if you wanted to play the game in a certain way you could run through each area from entrance to exit and not see any of that stuff so it's interesting you you can't do the same thing with a book to an, I mean, you could read the first and last paragraph of each chapter I suppose and you probably get a similar experience there, there's definitely some there are some small stories that you are going to have to pick up on in order to like get to the next place yeah. because it's a it's not an open box world and so the environment is funneling you in a particular direction so you can get to the next like big story moment and continue on to the next area and sometimes the way that you get to a new place or find out what you need to do is through notes from people left behind. And the, those fill in the gaps in your knowledge that would you might figure it out eventually, but that's clearly the way they intend you to know this is how you open that door. This is how, this is where you need to go. This is the map that you need in order to figure out what you need to do next, etc. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the other thing about it is that it, we're getting a lot of games that are very much a what you do defines what happens at the end of the game, or games that pretend that they are that at least, uh, where you get moral choices throughout. This is a story about someone else's moral choices, which can be quite uncomfortable at times because Joel doesn't necessarily make good choices all the time. He's definitely ruthless with some of the things. 
he's not always the most ruthless person in a scene, but... He's so, not always not, either. No, I, I think it's telling in the early scenes you have him and Tess, and mm-hmm. when they decide, like, when they've caught up with Robert, who has been threatening them and putting their lives at risk, and also, I think most importantly to them, horning in on their turf for trading and smuggling, he's on the ground and bleeding, and it's Tess that kills him, not Joel. Tess seems to have a less of a heart in some ways than Joel does, but still has a more optimistic view in the outlook, or at least a wider world view. I think it's important to note that Joel, like an actual person, isn't consistent in how merciful or ruthless he is, or how open he is with people, how honest he is. That seems to change based on the situation, and I think that's true of most people. I think most people have sort of a a range that they tend to be in, and you might more often be in one place than another, but we all have our worst moments, and we all have our like best, most forgiving, most um, willing to see the best in people, get benefit of the doubt moments. I'm reminded of, the, there's a study that's like, essentially showed that there's an astonishing effect of how close to lunch or like basically the blood sugar of a parole board or judge I can't remember on like sentencing or whether or not a prisoner is considered eligible for parole it has way more to do with essentially how hungry the people evaluating you are and very little to do with your actual credentials for release or sentencing and I think that's while terrible it's very human in that we are not always aware of what is actually influencing us to be ruthless or forgiving. Um, There are similar things about, like, if you're holding a warm beverage, like, you're more likely to be trusting of people or accommodating for people, and if you're holding something cold, like, you're you're more likely to be critical and things like that. There, There's a whole lot of subconscious factors. How comfortable we are in a place has a lot to do with the, the way we're going to make even what should be like a very logically based or ethically based choice. And so sometimes you see Joel being like a ruthless hard ass who's willing to torture someone and then kill them even when he got what he needed from them, but then also not do that. Yeah. I want to get back to that with um, some of the stuff later. I think it's good good to look at sort of the world that that, that they're starting in. Right from the off, we're shown... Because any choice that's being made is being made with minor changes, but also with the world they're in. So we start off with the intro scene that gives us a very brief look at Joel and Tommy and gives us that history about his daughter that we need for what happens later. And then we have the time jump, which gives us a very quick outline of 20 years of things going wrong. It's just like some depiction of fungal growth and stuff with a voiceover of different newscaster-type voices talking about martial law being declared, the Fireflies rising up and being viewed as a terrorist organization, and sort of hopes of a cure dying out of it, um, and the quarantine zones, etc. When we then get into the 20 Years Later section, we're very quickly presented with Joel and Tess, who are clearly not in great places. Um, Joel wakes up and has a drink. Always a great sign. And they're talking about needing to go and get their merchandise back and whatever. Once they step outside, we're introduced to two 
organizations through either their presence in the form of the Fedra people, who are shown to be in control of the area, to be holding up a ration line, a long line of people who are staying there going and talking about the fact that maybe it's going to be half rations this week. And again, this is conversations you can walk around and listen to if you want to, or you can just ignore the world that you're in. And we also see them pulling people out of a building, testing them to see if they're infected, finding one that tests positive, and killing them very brutally. At the same time, we're introduced to the fireflies, where there's graffiti of look for the light, this sort of symbol of optimism, and they blow up a federal outpost. In a lot of games, we'd be told these are the people fighting the oppressive regime, and these are the people we should root for. That's sort of definitely my gut reaction, but we quite quickly get sort of the indication from Tess and Joel that they have a certain disdain for the Fireflies. They think that they're hoping for things that aren't going to happen, they're not realistic, and not necessarily appreciating their operating methods. They clearly have some sort of relationship, but nothing great. So I wanted to sort of talk a bit about how those two organisations are presented within the game and how they're responded to by different characters. And also how institutions and organisations of the past are presented as well. Because I say the Fedra side of things, Fedra is the current position, but you find relics of the organisations that became Fedra, or you find places where barriers have got their signs up, but they aren't there anymore. Well, like, almost every building you go into has most of the doors closed um with these devices stamped with like u.s army or something on it so like clearly the military went through blocking off a whole lot of buildings and rooms trying to contain infected people well you know why right otherwise they would have had to program all of those rooms you mean like the the coders came to the yeah well it's also part of funneling you through well you can't go that way we didn't code that room but yeah so there's definitely at one point there's the the army, and that might be what's in charge now. It may not be Fedra anymore, or Fedra may be part of the army. Like it's not, it's not clear. But there's there's clearly like a, a state sanctioned military presence that yeah. is running all of the controlled contained areas. And then there's the Fireflies, and then as you say, they're like basically bandit camps. They're groups that are unaffiliated, but pretty much kill anybody who comes through where they are. And use people coming through as a source of supplies, more or less explicitly. But I think that one of the most telling things about all of these groups is that as far as as far as Joel and Ellie are concerned, trying to move through the world, they're all dangerous. They're all a threat. None of them are on your side. Um, not even the Fireflies, really. And there's not really any difference between them and the infected, except the infected want you to be one of them. Or not necessarily want, but that's what their actions are are aimed toward. Yeah, that's interesting because if you think through the living people that you meet, you meet Bill, who is an established friend and trading partner. Okay, maybe not friend, but acquaintance, certainly. Someone that they know and know that they can trust already. And then from there, I think the next people that you meet are Sam and Henry. And the first interaction you have with them is fighting and they only pause because they realize that they're each traveling with a kid. The hunters that are in the area don't keep children around because they just kill people. And then after that, the only other people that you come across are David and his group, who it turns out are trying to kill you. Yeah, well, they turn out to be cannibals. 
And David might also be a pedophile. Like, that also might be part of why he wants to keep Ellie alive. It's not clear, but it's, it's implied. It's heavily implied. So either way, like, they're not acting in your best interest either. Like, they, they also have violent plans for Joel and Ellie. Tommy and his crew at the power plant are oh. initially going to shoot them if they don't identify themselves, but Tommy recognizes them, and then they're friendly. But that's because they they have a pre-existing bond there that establishes some trust. Otherwise, they probably would have just killed any people yeah. who came by without a pre-existing connection to the group. The society's become based on so little trust of the stranger that your first instinct is to kill them. Um, right, and that does make sense when you know that anyone could be carrying a disease that will wipe out your entire group and turn you on each other. And also when supplies but, are so scarce. Yeah. Um, I think the other thing that you get is the story of Ish that we talked about. He's been at sea for a while, he comes back and finds these tunnels that he makes secure for himself, and then he starts trading with some locals that he trusts because they have kids with them. Mm-hmm. Um, so that becomes a big sign of who can you trust in this situation. Um, and I do think that that's an important signifier of the type of orientation a group has if they're willing like if they're willing to have the risk of having children in their group, then that's a sign of a more prosocial stance in general and that they're not necessarily as not necessarily not as ruthless, because people will do a lot to protect their kids, but that there's an interest in having a community. If you're going to have a group of people with kids, that's a group of people who are building a community. Yeah, it's not a purely survival thing. I think it's an interesting take on the institutions that do appear within the game, but are still the exist- that are sort of existing, is that you have this militarized presence that's being rejected by everyone. And you have the Fireflies that are being rejected by most people at this point. Um, And they're certainly rejected by our protagonists at the end of the game, fairly brutally. But it's not not a rejection entirely of larger communities or some form of institution. It's a rejection of those oppressive groups in particular. Tommy's group is shown in a much more favourable light. They're getting power up and running. They've got teams and crews of people but they care about their people. There's a really telling moment that you just sort of see as a conversation off to one side where I think it's Maria, Tommy's wife, goes over to one of the guys and is like, hey, I thought you were supposed to be like heading back to your family in town. And he says, well, you know, I'm waiting for the person who's supposed to relieve me is running late. And she's like, no, you, you, you can go. We're fine. We've got plenty of people here. Like, go, go and see your family. That's not a level of care that we've seen anywhere else. And I think it's that this isn't a community that was started by people who said, we're going to change and we're going to make a difference and we're going to run things. It's a group that was started by Tommy and Maria, by the looks of it, that said, we care about each other. And that's where they go back to at the end of the game. When you compare that to even the Fireflies, Marlene is willing to sacrifice Ellie in the hopes of a cure. She doesn't seem to have any attachments elsewhere. There's Ellie's mother was a friend 14 years ago. But we don't know anything else about her attachments beyond she's in charge of the Fireflies. When we meet Riley in Left Behind, the stuff that is vaguely hinted at about that organization, like it sounds like you have to kill an infected as part of your initiation, 
as a 13-year-old girl, and it's, uh, you have to go over to this city now, we don't care that you're leaving your friends behind, like, this is just the way it is. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting what is and isn't being rejected within those larger communities. I think the part about, like, the the way that the Fireflies are run is, it's part of how they're not really that different from the military. Right. It's the same thing of, like, we need to put you in a position where the only ties you have are the ties you have to us. And where your main priority is our mission. And that's the be-all end-all of what you need to be worrying about. And tough shit if there's something else that is important to you. Right. And it's interesting that, you know, that comes up as, like, the lack of a difference between the two groups. When that's why Riley joined, is she didn't want to be part of the military. She decided to join the Fireflies because it seemed like the only option where she wasn't a soldier. But she joined the Fireflies and she's still a soldier. She's just a different... She's just a soldier on the different on a different side. Yeah. Um, like this is basically like a three sided war with the infected and the fireflies and the military, um, except that they're and they're all fighting each other, which means none of them can really gain a foothold on anything else that they're trying to do. Right. And it's people like Joel and Tess who have said, No, we're not gonna be on any side of that. We're... And the other hunters, the other renegade people right. who are just going to try and get whatever they can get out of that system. Yeah, and we can come back to that a bit later. But, I mean, to your point about the fireflies not being that different, like, one of the collectible items that you find all over the place is firefly pendants. They're called pendants. They're dog tags. They're dog tags. That in itself is very militaristic. It's also an odd choice, because A, you're going to have to try and manufacture those, which can't be... I mean, they're not complicated, but it's something you've got to do during scarce resources. And also, you're being hunted by the military. There's not a good reason to have those that's presented within the game. Collectibles. Mm, true. Those aren't hard. It's a stamp. Right. And they just like punch. They're punched out discs. So. As long as you have the equipment for that. I don't think it's terribly complicated equipment, though. Well, we're talking about the world that's described throughout the game. I think it's also important to look at not just the groups of people that are sort of the antagonists, or at least the barriers in the game um, that tell you a lot about the world, but also the infrastructure that you encounter throughout the world and move through that also tells you a lot about what's happened in the intervening 20 years and the world that people are living in at this point. A lot of the time, some of the like most important things that are pushing you in one direction or another are like Essentially, the decrepit nature of buildings that you're trying to get through, traffic jams that have basically been immortalized and grown over. You know, you're constantly like climbing over air ducts and diving in flooded buildings to find exits and things like that. Getting hurt or put in danger by infrastructure failure. And I think that does tell you a lot about the world that we've built in terms of infrastructure and the reliance we have on things like basically gray infrastructure like buildings and roads that are dependent on human upkeep and are also they're built to withstand like a certain level of stress and at which point they become completely unusable and they fail right now i'm working on research projects that are focused on like urban sustainability and this topic of like infrastructure resilience and like what is that what does resilience even mean when it comes to infrastructure um comes up a lot um in the discussions that i have for work and there's this growing realization in urban planning that 
we historically been designing things to withstand a 10-year or 100-year event, which is not something that happens every 10 years or happens every 100 years. It's more like it has like a 1 in 10 chance, 1 in 10 chance or like a 10% chance or 1% chance of happening historically, like when you look back at the past. But the models that give you those are completely useless right now because of climate change, or at least like they're increasingly unreliable. And so when you're trying to build something to withstand something that wasn't supposed to happen very often, but now that's all the time. We're hitting we're hitting record-breaking um, temperatures like every summer for the past several years. Um, our hurricanes and major storm systems are getting worse and worse and things like that. And that's a real problem when we built things to withstand the worst of what we were used to before, knowing that when they fail in the face of the upper limit of what they can handle, they become completely useless and it becomes a tragedy. Like the failure of those systems and that infrastructure results in tremendous loss of life, tremendous loss of quality of life, and downstream and cascading failures in other systems. Um, and so you're moving through this world in The Last of Us where that has happened and you're seeing it. You're seeing flooding and power outages and generators that maybe work for a couple of minutes, things that have rotted out, rusted out, things that have become blocked off either by human activity or human inactivity. Yeah, I was going to say, it's interesting because I don't think you see a lot of evidence that like, like there are some things that are flooded and things like that, but we don't see a lot of evidence of earthquakes in particular or such. It's just what happens when that maintenance stops being done regularly or something happens and there's no one there to deal with it. You're going through the power plant that Tommy's getting working again and they find a turbine has got this huge metal rod that has wedged into it which has stopped the turbines from running. That would have been fixed, but there was no maintenance. With just all the buildings that have been slowly falling down, um, there is also some more destructive stuff where things like uh, Boston has been bombed to try and slow the spread of the infection and things. So you're going through that and that's falling apart. But that's less relevant. But still, like, the way that the things that we as human beings built to make our lives easier and to solve problems of our day are barriers and hazards for the characters in this story who are living in a point where we're not focused on amenities and comfort, we're focused on survival and a lot of the time survival based on getting away, which means blocking things off and making things harder to use and harder to navigate. And so you're, and it's also part of how you're seeing the stories of what happened to people in the intervening 20 years, because as I think I mentioned before, like you see that a lot of that failure has been exacerbated if not caused, but mostly I think exacerbated by people intentionally compromising the usefulness of these structures, you know, barricading yeah. streets with semis and boarding up um, things, breaking elevators and things like that. Yeah. And it creates this sort of interesting little dichotomy where the game presents the past civilization hubs like cities as being these very like, stressful, deteriorated areas, 
and then you get some very peaceful, calm times when you're out in the wilderness. Like, you'll come across the occasional infected, maybe, and there's a couple of times when you're in slightly more rural areas and you're being hunted by humans, but they're much rarer in, like, the scenes when you find yourself walking through the woods, you can just sort of relax a bit. Right, and it, and it does make sense in a world where the dangers are infected humans and armed humans that the places where there are less humans and thus less human infrastructure and a less built environment is going to be also a less dangerous environment. You know, that brings to mind like the work that I'm doing right now. One of the research groups that is connected to the lab that I'm working in has been sending around a survey to find out how people are using parks and urban green space differently during COVID-19. And that just reminds me of this. It's like a big part of why people seem to be using parks and nature trails and things like that more is because they are associated with greater safety from a human-borne hazard. You know, there's more room to spread around. There's UV light that's, you know, going to kill the virus in a similar way in a wilderness that is not was not home to millions of people you're not going to have nearly the the human hazard of getting bitten or getting shot in the world of the last of us can we link to some of your work stuff in the show notes i don't see why not oh there's a survey that i can link to if if you if you want to weigh in on how you and your family have been using urban green space because part of what this is research like this does is help researchers have numbers that they can take to people who make policy to be like we should make parks and things like that you know essential infrastructure basically we should fund those we should build those up we should make sure that more communities have access to places like that so because then you'll have somewhere to hide from the zones indeed but we, we can link some of the general research that you guys have been doing as well so talking a little bit about the infected i wanted to talk about I guess this is less the storytelling and more just sort of my own interest in the world. So the uh, so the technical term for the zombies in this world is cordyceps. It's which are humans who have become infected with the cordyceps fungus, which you may know about as the fungus that gets into ants' brains and makes them walk up to the top of a piece of grass so that they can be eaten by a bird, and then the fungus can be distributed across the world. It's mildly horrific, but yes, on humans now and. We're given four stages that these go through. Gets transmitted to humans through biting, because it's a zombie game, or also through the inhalation of spores that are given off from advanced fungal growths. The first two phases I always get backwards. There's runners and stalkers, one where the host will sort of move around looking for a prey. I think stalkers are the ones that sort of stand still in a kind of like a trap, and if they see you, will run at you. That might be backwards. No, it's not. The runners are running around. The stalkers are like in one place, but if you get near them, they attack you. Okay. And then it gets more interesting as you get into um, the clickers, which, because the fungus is in the brain, as it grows uh, over time, and it is noted that it takes a long time for, for clickers to become clickers. Like, you come across areas and you find a clicker and they're like, oh, these people have been gone a while because there's clickers here. But by this stage, um, the fungus has grown out of the head and made them blind so they only see through sound and make a weird little clicking sound as they move around to echolocate yeah and then 
the fourth stage that we're shown within the game is the bloater, which is usually shown as starting off as stationary. There's a couple of times you do find them moving around. And like the first one that we meet is has sort of seemed to have been vaguely stuck to a wall in a closet. And they have grown out so much fungus that like they've got sort of armor plates. They're weirdly large for their size. But they do sort of seem to grow into the wall as well. Between that progression and the fact that we see some fairly large fungal growths just on walls that don't seem to be connected to humans, I sort of just wanted to talk a little bit about where though that would naturally progress in our world and what we might see in The Last of Us 2 for that. Well, with the bloaters, it's interesting because those are ones that produce spores, and they're the last stage we're shown and the only stage we're shown where they're throwing out spore bombs, and spores are released by the fruiting body of a mature fungus. So that makes an interesting amount of sense in terms of, like, a life stage progression. But you can't just take into account, like, the way, like, a fungal life cycle would work, because it would mainly just be, like, a fungus would just get bigger, and it would just continue to have more and more fruiting bodies and things like that, as long as it had substrate to feed on. But the So you're suggesting that the natural life cycle of the fungus would be that the bloaters would just get to be bigger bloaters? Yeah. Or eventually, if they didn't have anything to eat once the body was fully dissolved, you would just have mature fungal growths releasing spores periodically. But we have to take into account the medium of the story, which is video games, and the fact that this is a class of enemies. So that brings in its own set of storytelling considerations as far as what you're likely to see in this universe, by the rules of this sort of universe. And by that logic, I think we have to look at other games like Horizon Zero Dawn and, you know, other sorts of games where you encounter progressively harder enemies. Because what you have right here is you have a weak but fast enemy who is easily taken down. That's the runners. The stalkers who are also easily taken down, but they ambush you. So you might get caught by surprise and get killed that way. So you have to be watching for them. They're kind of an equivalent level of enemy, but stalkers are maybe a little worse just because you don't know that they're there. The clickers are the harder one because you have to use supplies to kill them. Like yeah. you, it, They are a resource drain. And also they're aggressive and they can spot you. So they're like, in Horizon Zero Dawn, it's similar to one of the enemies that has a scanner which adds an additional level of danger. The bloater is your heavy. They move really slowly, and you definitely know they're there, so you need to avoid them, because if they hit you, they hit really, really hard. And I think what makes sense after that, as far as video game logic, is something more like the Deathbringer in Horizon, something that is massive, and you definitely know it's coming, but it has a lot of different heavy weapons that it can launch at you in different ways in different different directions um maybe also like putting out mines maybe also having something like a turret you know spore based weapons and maybe like viscousy weapons stuff that makes sense with the the fungal properties if that makes sense yeah maybe a sickness or something like, so I think that would make the most sense. It would still move, but not a lot, or not quickly. Just this giant fungal growth that has cannons all over it, effectively. Yeah, pretty much. Mm. 
And then I think the progression after that that might make sense if you're combining this sort of escalation of enemy and video game logic would be something like the tower, I forget what it's actually called, but it's a thing you see in Frozen Wild, and it's a big tower that has an effect on other machines in the area. And that could be something like that. But I think what would make more sense would be more like a guard turret, like in Portal, but huge. Mm. You know, something that could sense you coming, like the clickers and like the bloaters that do respond to stimuli, but is stationary, and so you have to find the right path around it, and if you're wrong, you're pretty much dead. I think you might get an interesting alternative version of that, which I think the science would support, is as humans become less available over time, because more and more have died out, whether they could have it jump into other animals. Um, We see a few wild dogs in the game, we see a group of monkeys that we find out are infected, but don't seem to be showing any symptoms. I wonder whether in The Last of Us 2 we'll see animals getting infected. That's a really, really good point. I do really like that because there's a point at which we had a conversation about Ellie bites a human attacker at one point and says, I'm infected and now you are too. And it's like, well, is her immunity from the version of the virus that she has or is it something about the interaction of the virus or the, sorry, the spores, something about the particular fungal strain that she has, or is it something to do with the interaction of that with her immune system and like her body and the way her body handled it? And because Riley turned and we assume they were infected by the same, they might not have been. It it? wouldn't have been the same one, but it would have been from the same general vicinity. Right. They were both bitten by infected in the same mall. So it's likely that it's the same strain, but not necessarily, because there could be some slight variation. So that's still a question that hasn't been answered. But we do know that the monkeys that you find roaming the university, yeah, they were being used for experiments to try and find a cure, and they are carriers. And so that's the question, like, is Ellie a carrier? It's very unclear. Maybe she would carry an immune form, basically maybe a bite from her as a vaccine. We don't know. But it's equally likely, or maybe more likely, that it it's not it's something unique to her body's response and not something transmittable to other people. So that's a really interesting question with the other animals, and that would follow that same sort of video game logic. Again, back to Horizon Zero Dawn, you see a lot of the machines are modeled after progressively larger and more dangerous and more intimidating animals that we're familiar with, like crocodiles and rhinos and things like that. Got it. But point being, yeah, like in, in Horizon you do see... The progressively harder machines that are all modeled on different animals, and you could see something similar here, where you get where you get more dangerous enemies because oh shit, this is an infected wolf or this is an infected bear or something like that could be freaking terrifying. I mean, just the thought of like a clicker dog is ah. Well, there would be an interesting subversion of that too, because sorry, subversion of expectations there too, because we associate dogs with being safe and familiar man's best friend etc but i do think it's interesting that we don't at least i don't remember seeing infected children as enemies in the game so i wonder if they are interested in doing something like that where you're subverting this expectation of innocence and friendliness and things for that creepy payoff or not they might not want to do that interesting i'm glad that they don't have those i had not thought about that you see an infected child because sam gets infected but that is the only one, you're right. 
And that's very in the story. Like, that's a yeah. particular encounter. That that's happens. not something that you have to deal with. It's dealt with in a cutscene by a character who is not a playable character. I think part of it is that you just see so few children. I mean, even when you're in the Boston, even when you're in the Boston quarantine zone, you don't see any children roaming around. It's very much older people. Um, you never actually enter Jackson, which is where Tommy lives. Like, you go to the power station, so you don't know what kids they might have there. But I'm sorry, tell like because obviously there's Ellie and there's Riley, Riley but they're kept in a military school. Mm-hmm. And I, I do think I think that the only connection we see between children and infected is people mercy killing children who are infected or are at risk of becoming infected like at the point at which the adults have decided they can't protect the kids anymore they seem to unilaterally kill them to like protect them from having that experience which is really really dark um and happens in a few different ways like you come across places where that clearly happened a long time ago but then you also have the scene with sam where once he's turning and entering the runner phase his brother ends up killing him yeah the sequel being set five years later will leave some room for that sort of thing to come up it's interesting because now i think about the trailers that i have seen do only seem to deal with humans so i wonder whether to some extent the infected will be a rarer issue but a bigger one so going back to sort of the world building and commentary on our worlds and the cordyceps as a plot element in the story like a major plot element in the story I want to kind of look at this idea that's already out there about zombie stories, about it being a commentary or an examination in some way of consumerism and fears of conformity and things like that in our culture. I don't think it's an accident that a lot of the major locations you go to, particularly at the beginning of the game when the world is kind of being established, has you go through the remnants of places that are an important part of how humans are indoctrinated into their roles in society and how different parts of their communities work. So we go to the Capitol building, we halls of government where decisions are made and things like that. And you have a church and a school. Later on, you end up at a university. So all of these are places where people learn the rules and how they're supposed to behave and what is and isn't acceptable and things like that. And at the same time, you're in this world where the supposed worst, like, threat is this mindless zombie threat of identical people who just want to make more of themselves and destroy everything in the process. But also at the same time, even the things that are trying to combat that threat are also increasingly homogenized across each other. Like... You know, if you put a firefly and a military quarantine zone officer and a hunter in a lineup, like, yeah, the differences between them are very slim. Yeah. And I think that that leads, interestingly, into the next point I want to talk to, which I think will be a nice lead into uh, talking a bit more about the morality. I know we talked a little bit about that earlier. Which is, you sort of get this dichotomy set up within there, which I think relates to some of the political things that you've been talking about as well. I think it's worth noting that the areas that you end up in at the towards the end of the game as far as institutions are a university, which tends to be much more about learning other things and breaking out of some of those habits, and also a hospital, which is supposed to be a place of healing and bearing, as far as that narrative goes, a progression. I suppose so. I'm not sure I quite see the connection with the hospital. 
Yeah, I didn't worry about it. I think in a lot of ways the hospital is more there as a subversion of the expectation of safety. Yeah. And of progress, like of people there to help you. Yeah, that's fair. But the, the university, I think that's a good point, though, and like because that is a point where you're supposed to be breaking out of some of your programming, or at least examining it to decide whether or not it's programming you want. Yeah. Or agree with. And it's a place where they take a moment to have a moment of wonder for Ellie. She's yes. nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have the giraffes that are wandering around the campus for an unclear reason. So she gets the pet one. It's kind of cool. And, and that also is counter to this repeated idea that you know kids can't be kids in this world and there's no room for play or innocence or wonder. I think that was something that you wanted to talk about. In a bit. Oh, okay. Sorry. We'll, we'll get to that in a minute. The last thing that I think we want to talk about on this stuff, though, which I think leads fairly well into the other stuff, is that you get this sort of dichotomy set up where you have a choice of how to be in the world, and it's not a good choice, where you end up in a position where you can either be a victim of violence or perpetrate it yourself. Right, and I do think that that the world is set up in such a way that that is what it is telling you are the only options, but at the same time, certain parts of the narrative are pushing you to think beyond that, particularly Ellie as a character. She doesn't want to do that. Like, she will to sur- she will perpetrate violence to survive. She's clearly not okay with it. She clearly hasn't accepted it as, like, inevitable and okay or, like, justified necessarily because she seems to feel a need to be redeemed for it because she says at one point that she can't have all of it, everything that she's done not be for a good reason. Right, which and is... To, which is in service of becoming an instrument of a cure, basically. Right, that's when, um, just before they get to the fireflies at the hospital, Joel takes a moment and is kind of like, we don't have to do this. You don't have to go in there and be subject to medical tests or whatever it will be. We can go back to Jackson and you can have your own life if you want. Mm-hmm. She has this moral moment of, no, I have, like, I've done bad things and I have to do that. It's interesting because she had, like, in the early parts of the game, she's asking Tess and Joel, like, for a gun so she can defend herself, which, having played Left Behind, is interesting because she's seen Riley defend herself with a gun, and presumably has seen others do that before, but being in a powerless position herself there. But when she does eventually save Joel and gets given a gun afterwards, like, when she's first killed a guy, like, it clearly hits her, and then you see a recurrence of that with David, mm-hmm. uh, where she takes out some of her frustrations on him in a position where she's had her life and more threatened. Because at that point, she goes beyond killing someone to survive, and she's effectively maiming a corpse because of her anger and frustration and fear um, in in the situation. And at that point, like, I think she, in a way that totally makes sense, is then feels bad about that. Yeah. It's more that she did more than kill to defend herself, but I think it's it, complicated. I think it's interesting because the story slowly works Joel into a father role for Ellie. You have the moment where he sort of tries to reject that when like he's trying to pawn her off on Tommy and she's upset about that and he's like, I'm sure as hell not your dad. Mm-hmm. Um but by the end of it, like he's talking about how, you know, he'll teach her to play the guitar and you know, when this is all over and that, you know, oh, he thinks that she would have got on well with his daughter and this sort of stuff. 
Right. And uh, I mean, there's a point at which he's consoling her and calling her baby girl, which was the endearment he used for his daughter. Right. So um, it really goes all the way around where he's in that role. Yeah. He he need, he feels the need to reject that for a reason. It's because he's feeling something there. Mm-hmm. And he hasn't. Joel's uh, take on dealing with any sort of emotions in this is, is not constructive. It's, uh, well, what we'll do is we'll just ignore the fact that that happened and we'll move right on. Yeah. But your friend for however many years has just, like, given up her life to say, nope, we're not going to talk about it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Deeply uh, steeped in toxic masculinity. Yeah. But because he ends up in that sort of mentor role, it's interesting to look at the take that he has on the world, which is really told by Tess, I think, because you have that that opening section that you're with Tess for. She acknowledges to him, like, there's the whole thing about we're shitty people. Mm-hmm. Um, they have acknowledged that they do bad things because that is how you survive in this world. When they hit a trap that's being set by hunters who want to kill them and take their stuff, afterwards Ellie asks him, like, how did you know it was a trap? And he said, because I've been on both sides of it. Like, he he has killed people, probably innocent people, to survive and has taken that on as the cost. And it's not purely the cost, it's a making sure as well when he has the two people. And we can give him benefit of the doubt and say that, like, his reaction to the people that he interrogates to try and find out where Ellie is, he is very angry at the time, but he does brutally torture them and then kill both of them anyway, as you mentioned earlier, which is ruthless. And I mean, you can argue that it's about making sure he's not followed, but there is also just that aspect of you didn't necessarily need to do that to survive. You did that because that was your choice. And even if you did need to do it to survive, that's still a choice. Right. And that's the lesson that he is passing on to Ellie as they go through this. Right. And it's, it is a story in which killing to survive is stated as justified and set up as, like, preserving your own life is set up as a reasonable excuse for destroying countless other lives. And that is... I think an argument that a lot of our society does agree with. I mean, I mentioned it before, but there's like the mental gymnastics of eating meat, which we definitely do, of like, we've decided that it is justifiable to kill other creatures, not even necessarily for, to sustain our lives, but to sustain our lives in a more appealing and palatable way. But also, I mean, police violence. Like, so many people think it's justifiable for a police officer to murder somebody if they had even the slightest idea that that person might hurt or kill them, regardless of the situation. And our laws are set up to reflect that. And the statistics reflect the impact of that kind of thinking and that kind of excusing of lethal response at the slightest provocation. Yeah, and I mean, we we spoke a little bit earlier about the... Black Lives Matter movement, and I, I think it is worth noting that there is a stark parallel with how you see Henry and Sam interact regarding the dangers of the world. Henry spends a lot of his time telling Sam not to play around, not to make noise, like, don't carry a toy that you don't need. So much of it is him 
warning Sam of the dangers that you mentioned earlier, like kids can't be kids, there's no innocence there. Joel and Ellie have a slightly different interaction on that sort of a thing, but I think that it's a powerful image to have Sam and Henry representing that on the screen. Yeah, it does call to mind, and a few different things in popular media lately have depicted like the talk that black families have to have with their kids, and Grey's Anatomy did a really good one. I think that Blackish did one too, I want to say. Yeah, they did. They're, and they're always very powerful when they are portrayed, and I think it's really important that white people see that, because I think it, it really does drive home the fact that even in our world that's supposed to be so advanced in our civilization that's supposed to be so great. There are huge groups of the population, black and Latino children in particular, that can't be kids that are seen as dangerous by default and have to constantly live in fear of being considered a threat and killed, um, whether they were doing anything wrong or not. And it doesn't even matter. They're not doing anything that deserves death. And like, there's the, the toy robot that Sam wants to bring with him and you see like Ellie ends up taking it and trying to give it to him but he's internalized this idea that he can't be a child anymore has never really been able to be a child he rejects it from her well the point at which he rejects it he knows he's infected and it's one of the things that like as an audience we don't know he's infected I mean you had called it when you saw it and I knew except I played the game before but Ellie looks back on that conversation that she has with him like, the last night he's alive, realising that the things that she said weren't great for someone who knew they were about to die to hear. Yeah, but I still think the parallel stands, because young black kids who get arrested trying to go into their own house, they, they lose their childhoods. Yeah. And they are no longer able to appreciate, you know, the joys of, of childhood and innocence anymore, because they know too much about the world and how bad it can be. And I think that's exactly what you're seeing in the, in that. And I do think it's I think it's appropriate that they show that happening with a young black boy that he finds out that he is now a threat in this world and he's going to be put mm -hmm. down like one. And he's he understands it. He's not happy about it, but it has killed his innocence. Yeah. On a tangentially related note, I wanted to talk a little bit about what honour looks like in this world. Largely, it doesn't. There's a lot of every man for themselves sort of attitude. Uh, one of the weird things that we do see for it is that the honourable thing to do is represented as if you're bitten, you own up about it. In Left Behind, you come across the log of a helicopter crew, and it's noted that one of them was bitten and you know, immediately showed them the Biden, accepted their fate. It's later revealed that that isn't exactly what happened, but it's shown as being this man died with honour because he did this thing. It's just interesting that that is one of the few things that stands still. It's still a matter of the honourable thing is to help your community. It's just that the one of the few ways that that's still represented is through this... Transparency. Yeah. Yeah, and that's interesting uh, right now because we're in the middle of a pandemic and I'm seeing less things about it now, but particularly earlier on in like lockdowns and stuff and like businesses having you know, reduced hours and trying to discourage shopping and stuff, I kept seeing 
people in our network and people sharing stuff from outside of our network about customers going into establishments, often not wearing masks or anything, to take advantage of the services there at the store or whatever, and then after, like, when ringing up or whatever, telling the cashier that they just left their infected sister's house or something yep. like that, you know? Or um, people coming and, like, coughing around everywhere, but still exposing other people to their germs. Yeah, I, I was still working in retail as things were retaking off. I was working right up to when we closed. And, I mean, you'd be there and you'd see people not wearing masks and you'd be standing in the store. It's not very busy because a decently large number of people are staying at home, but you just hear people off in the distance coughing and you're like, maybe it's hay fever. Maybe you've come out and you know you might not be well. I don't know. So yeah. you make your point. But yeah, so you're seeing people who are like not telling people they're putting at risk until after they've gotten what they need from them, which I think is it's a similarly dishonorable thing of like the person who's like not telling their group that they're infected in The Last of Us because they still have a few hours you know, and they don't want to die. And I mean, it's a very human thing, and I understand it, but it's also very selfish. And in the context of this world, it's the dishonorable thing, is to lie or hide that you're infected um, when you know that it means you're going to kill everyone around you that you can in a few hours. Yeah, and it's interesting the way that we see that play out a few times. I mean, with Sam, he doesn't tell them, and that does put the group at risk. Um, it less at risk because it's Ellie that he attacks, and Infection's not a concern there, but he didn't know that. With Tess, it's shown as... I mean, part of that is the plot device to prove that Ellie is telling the truth. She was bitten, and then an hour later, like, her bite looks terrible, Ellie's looks fine, and Tess is showing the bite and giving herself up to... Like, she is... Effectively takes out... Takes, you know, suicide by cop. The waits for the military and you know, gives them time to get away. That's honourable. The other ones that we see are when Riley and Ellie are bitten and they choose not to take that route out. Like, it's discussed that the options are we can kill ourselves or we can wait it out. But it's interesting because you don't actually know what they do while they're waiting it out. Like, they may not ever return to civilization during that period of time. They might have decided to stay in the abandoned mall where they can't hurt anyone else and just lose their minds together as Riley says and then of course Riley turns and presumably Ellie has to kill her or flee from her but like it's not clear they might have done a like quasi honorable thing in not putting others at risk by going like by self-isolating basically right but they might not have and we don't actually know the thing is even if you shut yourself in a mall and turn there at some point someone might go into the mall you don't know what's going to happen well, that's true that's exactly what happened to them right um <laughs> But you do also come across several people who have committed suicide as an alternative to turning. Yeah. But it's it's interesting theories. I mean, the Riley imparts a fundamental part of Ellie's worldview in those moments by saying, we could have died at any point, but we have to fight for whatever we can, whether it's two minutes, two hours, or two days. Mm -hmm. Like, we don't give up. So she's saying, okay, we'll turn. Mm -hmm. But we'll get time together until then. That's worth waiting for. That's that's an important part of character development for Ellie, and I think that's interesting. The other thing that it allows is it allows them to find out that Ellie's immune, mm-hmm. which the alternative options don't allow for. Right. 
And a lot of the, the institutional responses that are very focused on immediate safety are exactly why there isn't a cure 20 years on. And we talked about that before the podcast. Like, if you're rounding up and killing anyone who tests positive for the virus before they turn, you never are going to catch the people who don't. And you come across pretty early in the game a um, artifact that's like the, the protocol, basically, for when people are going into the quarantine zone. And that's what they do. They scan you, and anyone who's infected is... It's implied that they are, um, they're either immediately killed or they're all put together in someone, in some place, which means even if anyone was immune, they'd be surrounded by turned people who would immediately kill them. Yeah. So yeah, it's that honorable path of isolating the infection by killing the host immediately. That is exactly why they can never gain any ground. And it's the people who are like, no, I want to fight for it, even if it's not that much time. And even if it does put others at risk. That, you know, valuing life over that, or like at least not being willing to kill even yourself for any reason, um, that is what opens the door, as you say, to them potentially finding some sort of path forward with this. And I'm interested to see what happens in the sequel regarding what their protocols might be if someone is infected, and whether they do wait and see. I suspect from what I've seen that they don't, because I think Ellie is still concealed as being immune but one of but like you have this short-sighted response that's to kill anyone who might be a threat of being infected that stops you finding those immune people it's the same problem that they're having with people yeah if you see someone you assume that they're going to try and kill you and take your stuff so you kill them that's very much joel's mo Mm -hmm. but in the same way that by killing the infected you don't find the immune by killing any stranger you come across you don't find the people who are kind. Mm-hmm. And over time, in the same way that you get purely people who are infected and people who are vulnerable to it, you end up with a society that is going to be ruthless. Right. That's what brings you to that, are you a perpetrator or a victim? Those are the two options, society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely agree. And it reminds me of that bullshit analogy that people are always like, trying to tread out as, like, reasons we shouldn't take in refugees and stuff. It's like, ah, if you had a bowl of skills and three of them were poison, would you eat them? And it's like, well, if those each represented a human life, damn right I would, you know? And it's, are you willing to take on the risk of danger to yourself in service of a greater humanity and service to life? And there's no room for a life without any risk. Like, you're not really living. There's a difference between living and surviving. Right. And it's that sort of what is worth saving question. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting with how the game ends mm-hmm. as that as an answer to that question. Because Joel's in a position where he and Ellie are at the Firefly base and he finds out that to try and find a vaccine, they will have to kill Ellie because the fungus is on her brain and that's what they need to look at. Marlene has already made the decision of I'm okay with this. She's not happy about it, but she will tolerate it. And the argument is put forward, it's her for humanity. Mm-hmm. And Joel says no. He breaks her out, and that's that. But it's not just that. He then lies to her about he it. Does. And I think that's a really important dimension of that, because she had made it clear that she was willing to do whatever it took for her immunity to potentially help other people. And she, by all indication, probably would have been okay with being 
autopsied and dissected or whatever to try and find a cure. But maybe it's unclear whether she herself was ever given that choice. Yeah. And I think that is one of the more frustrating things about that ending to me is it's all of these people making all of these decisions for her about her life. Right. And I think I think it's really important that at the end she does have uh answer me this moment. Like mm-hmm. look me in the eyes and tell me that what you said was true. Which says that she's questioning whether it is. Mm-hmm. And he does. And there's the question of does she believe him? Which is the question I'm excited to find out about in the sequel. Yeah. The her or the world thing, I mean, it is a trolley problem, basically. Yeah. And it's very I mean, that's a ethical dilemma that has been of interest to philosophers for ages and ages. We got into it with our episode on The Good Place. And it's very interesting because of the way that humans make decisions and the fact that we don't make make decisions in one way. We make different decisions based on what part of our brains and what part of our like analytical capacity we're employing. Um, when it comes to Will you yourself kill somebody to save millions? A lot of people are not going to be able to commit to that because it's a different part of your brain that makes the decision to for you to do that. Yeah. Whereas if it's a case of like you enabling some other process to you know arrive at a similar result, people are a lot more capable of removing themselves and their like emotional feelings about it and are more inclined to look at it more logically and be like well it's better to save the millions of people but there's the dimension of like is it ever okay to make the decision to end someone's life no matter what that reason is yeah and i mean the it's one of those things where the full story is what's important joel has shown that in this world he is looking out for him, mm-hmm. and he has had to lose someone he's taken as a daughter once before, literally his daughter, and isn't willing to go through that again. Like, he's let himself care, and he's worked so hard not to care about anyone and not to hold on to things, and any breaks through that for him. Mm-hmm. But then, the problem is, is that he doesn't make the decision because... He thinks the human race will be okay. He doesn't make the decision because he thinks Ellie should live. He makes the decision for himself. Yeah. It's the same argument of like, oh, you know, that person is somebody's daughter or sister or mother. And it's like, that person doesn't have value because of their relation to you. They have value in and of themselves as a human being. Unfortunately, a lot of people primarily see the world and other people instrumentally like that. Yeah. And Joel definitely does. I do want to come back to that in a moment, but I do just want to take a moment to talk about a couple of the video game storytelling elements that we see in this. Uh-huh. We obviously talked a little bit about how you find artifacts around and you'll find some supplies on dead bodies and stuff that tell their own little story. The game also does a really good job of keeping supplies limited, and that is stacked a little bit with the difficulty level that you're on. Unless you're on a low difficulty level, you really can't just shoot your way through the game. Like, every bullet counts. You have a gun with four bullets left in it, and maybe you won't find bullets for another hour of gameplay. And that really sort of helps keep it tense and make it feel realistic. You don't. Not every zombie that you kill is carrying a fully loaded shotgun for you. 
there's a lot of the sort of tension that is built with that sort of thing, which I think helps develop the world. You have a flashlight that is operated by like a little dynamo inside that has to be shaken up every so often. So like your flashlight will start flickering if you're if the battery is dying, and you have to shake the controller to shake the flashlight back up to get it working again. Sometimes that happens while you're in the middle of a fight. It's not ideal, but it makes it a lot more tense. And of course there's the traditional video game mechanic of the uh, tension built or the anticipation and dread when you get to a place with a suspiciously high amount of supplies and you're like, oh crap, this is yeah. about to get ugly, isn't it? Like, there you go. Oh wow, a full first aid kit. Oh no, a full first aid kit. Yeah, exactly. And ammunition? Crap. You <laughs> like And then you get better this... better do a bathroom break now and like <laughs> Um and you get a lot of the same sort of thing that ties in with that of the use of music. I really love the soundtrack for this game. A lot of it is just built off of acoustic guitars that make a atmospheric element. They put some violins, but then when you do get into combat and it does get Warmed up, it's very noticeable. Which I think the game also uses to cue you that the combat is over, too. Like, you can tell when you've cleared an area, either because your character says something about it, and or due to the cue of the music. Yeah. And sound is very important in the game. Um, like, you will sometimes, often, in fact, like, there, there's a listening mode where, like, you hold a button and your character listens and you can see people moving around on the other side of walls because your character can, quote, hear them. But you'll also sometimes just sort of stop and be like, wait, what was that? And you can hear it infected off in the distance because they make a distinctive sound, like they're breathing. It's worth noting we just saw a thing about accessibility in the sequel that they're putting mm -hmm. out, um, where you can apparently play the game almost entirely blind. Yeah, you can play um, it through, uh, they have enhanced audio cues functioning that you can enable, where you can play it almost entirely by sound. And there's also, like, a high contrast mode for people who have specific, like, visual impairments, you know, so that they can still understand what's going on. You can change the font size and uh, so that you can read the text better, which we always, we played with the captions on because there are conversations that happen that you can't actually hear, but you can read them if yeah. they're, if the captions are on. I think one of the other accessibility features they have settings for colorblindness and stuff. So, yeah, yeah it, they, they do seem to have put a lot of thought into it for the sequel to make sure that as many people are able to, you know, actually follow the story as possible. Um, they also scale it with difficulty. So, you like, you're not stuck on a easy setting. Like, if you want to play it on a hard difficulty setting, but with the accessibility features, like, those are decoupled. So you can do that. Yeah. I think the last thing to talk about there is um, the crafting system, mm. which is really interesting because, I mean, there's some things where, like, there's a selection of crafting supplies you can find and a set of things that you can build with those, and some of them have the same supplies. You can use explosives to make, combined with blades to make a nail bomb, or combined with sugar to make a smoke bomb. It depends on your style of play. But the one that is the biggest like symbolic choice i think is that the exact same supplies can be used to either make a first aid kit or to make a molotov cocktail um so at any point when you're crafting one of those you've got to make sure that you either have the supplies to make the other one if you need it or you have to make the choice of do i want to be able to blow something up or do i want to be able to heal myself 
I think that really does tie right back into the conversation about in this world, are you a victim or a perpetrator? Do you value life or do you value death, ultimately? I mean, you're always killing things in this game, but are you killing to survive or are you killing to live? So I think that covers most of the things that we wanted to talk about in this. But I think the big question is, who is the story about? See, that is a really interesting dilemma for me because I I find it very frustrating that in a lot of ways, to me, the story objectifies Ellie. Like, it should be about her. She's the immune person who wants to save the world with her immunity. But the narrative follows Joel predominantly. You you know more about him. You know more about his past, more about the way he makes decisions. Um, you're in his point of view for almost the entire game. But his story is also very centered on Ellie, at least for the playable parts of the narrative for the most part. You know, he's shepherding Ellie around. So, I mean, it is definitely about both of them. You're learning more about Ellie as you go along. But she is cargo and called that um, explicitly at the beginning of the game for a lot of it. She has very little agency and that makes it difficult to like say, well, it's about her, except it is, but it's not. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think one of the things that you mentioned when we were talking about is that um, the you mentioned that she's objectified at the start of the game and that you felt that it was a story that's told about Ellie, Mm -hmm. but largely through someone else's perspective. Yeah. But one of the things that you raised as a question was whether the story would be better if it was told through Ellie's point of view. And I think it would be a very different story Mm -hmm. um, while simultaneously being a very similar story because they have this sort of parallel in... I mean, to take a simple aspect of it, they both have a history of having lost someone. Mm-hmm. Um, Joel has his 20 years previously losing of his daughter. Ellie has her three weeks previously losing of Riley, who seems to have been her first romantic interest and closest slash only friend. And for both, both the, the player knows the story of Joel from the off, at least in broad terms. And learns Ellie's story throughout. But Ellie doesn't learn about Joel's side of it until fairly late on in the game. And even then, that's learned fairly slowly. So, if you were telling it from Ellie's point of view, you'd have similar steps of revelations. And I think it would make the game be more about finding out about Joel. So I think it might be better that it's told primarily from Joel's point of view with scenes from Ellie to make it about Ellie. But I think that what we're hitting up against is that at the end of the day, it's that the story isn't so much about the plot or about one character, but it's about their relationship. Yeah, and I do think that in thinking about this, it's important to think about what you would lose if you did switch it like that. And what you would lose is Joel's perspective from before Cordyceps. Mm. He lived in the world we know. So he's that point of relation to the audience he has a reference point that is shared with us of a world that is not overrun by this particular menace that has not been overrun by military and brigands, basically. So we can relate to what he's lost, basically. And because of that, we have insight into what has happened to the world. Does that make sense? Whereas if you're starting the story 
as Ellie, it's more like, again, Horizon Zero Dawn. It's more like starting the story with Aloy exploring an already decrepit civilization Mm. and trying to put together the pieces of what did this used to be? What was it like to live in that society? Yeah, which would be very difficult with Joel being very standoffish for about half the game. Right. He's not going to reminisce about, oh, I remember when we used to go to see cheesy teen movies. Like, right, it's, it's not doing that. Yeah, I mean, Ellie, like, does push him to that point through her relationship with him. That takes a long time to come out, and some of that does come from having gone through the stuff with Sam and Henry. Mm-hmm. And so it also comes through from Ellie having found out about his past from other people when she meets his brother and his brother's wife, who his brother has told about Joel. Yeah. I do really like the way that their relationship does grow, and that you get to a point where Ellie can talk a little bit about Sarah and give him the photo, but when he tries to probe about his wife, he shuts her down then. It's just like, ah. but But in a way where he doesn't really respond, and she acknowledges that she went too far. Yeah, and I also think there's an extent to which that's shut down for, like, meta reasons and that it's not relevant to the plot. His wife seems to have been out of the picture before the cordyceps infestation happened, before Sarah died. Like, that was already his past, so that's, like, the past past. It seems fairly unlikely that she's going to turn up in the second game, for example. Yeah. Like, whatever that was, like, it was not relevant enough to the plot for them to develop it and bring it into that relationship. You never see Joel wearing a wedding. But I think it is interesting from that point of view that the second game is told from Ellie's point of view and is going to be a game where she is turning 18, give or take. Yeah, I think the real question to answer there, although I think it's it's fairly intuitive that most likely during the course of the sequel... She, If she doesn't already know that Joel lied, lied about the Fireflies having given up on a cure, which was his excuse for when Ellie woke up in the car and when they had left the hospital, he said, oh, they stopped looking for a cure a long time ago. There are a lot of immune people. It doesn't mean anything kind of a thing. And uh, she tries to be like, eh, is that true? But either she has already found out that he was lying or she will find out in the course of that adventure, presumably, that he made that choice for her. He took that choice away from her. And the emotional fallout of that, and the, especially because, as you say, this story, whether we want to say Joel or Elia, the main character, I mean, I think the main character, as you're kind of alluding to, is the relationship that grows between them. And the trust, like the the main character was the friendship we made along the way. Um, I mean, I didn't say that, but that your, is your face definitely did. That at some point, either whether it's the found, whether it's the setup of the next game or something that unfolds over the course of the next game, that trust is going to be tested, and that relationship is going to have you know a major hurdle to contend with. Like, there are a lot of excuses Joel could make, but none of them would really be the real reason that he made that call. As you said, he made that call for selfish reasons. That's very clear from the character development we see before that point. He made it because, you know, she, at that point, was his person in his life. And it was because of that, not because of any 
actually honorable reason, like she's a child and you can't make that choice for a child or because he never asks if she was asked and if he had and they had said no, I mean, that might've been a valid reason, Yeah, you know? And I do think it's really interesting that they, they don't, they don't have that happen. Like there's not a moment where he asks about her will in this situation, not even to find out if it was, or if it was, uh, ignored. It's, um, yeah, like, to the extent that it'd been a while since I'd fin- ever finished playing through the game entirely, and I had forgotten exactly how the last scene with Marlene goes, and I was waiting for him to ask that question of, like, did you ask her? Because I could so see him saying, did you ask her, and Marlene hesitating too long before answering. Mm-hmm. And then he kills her. But it's, uh, it's, it's no, like... He doesn't even ask because he doesn't actually care. Like, that's not actually important to why he's making this call. Her will in the situation is not a factor. It's that he can't bear to lose her. And, like, Marlene even says, like, what if it's what she wants? And she said, when he hesitates in response to that, she says, you know it is. Marlene calls him on that exactly. That he knows Ellie would want to give her life for the possibility of a cure, and he doesn't care. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how they handle it. I think that answers the big question. But I think the bigger question is, what is the most ridiculous, like, made-up past-world thing? Like, the Dawn of the Wolf posters, and, like, the the uh, analog stores and stuff like that. Which one's the, like, what was the thing that you saw that you were like, that's ridiculous. There is, in one of the student dorm rooms, I think, there are some band posters over one of the beds, and there is a fake band called The Bash. The poster that's very much a takeoff of a Clash album. That was, that was pretty ridiculous. And some of like, the fake bands that are on the posters in general are pretty great. I also appreciated you come across a stack of board games, and there's one that's clearly uh, like modeled off the game of life, but it's called Strife, the game of strife. That um, was pretty great. That was uh, that was pretty good, and of course the uh, hilarious takeoff of uh, the Twilight films, the Dawn of the Wolf movies. <laughs> Which Twilight must have been big, right? As those were, yeah, it's around that era, wasn't it? I guess so, somewhere around there. Have any fun facts? I do not. But I'm sure you do, because it is your favorite game. I do. I do have some fun facts. So I have a few fun voice actor facts. The guy who voices uh, renowned cannibal and pedophile David, who is a real asshole in the game, is uh, played by Nolan North, who gamers might know as the voice of the hero in the first Assassin's Creed game, and also the hero in the Uncharted series, in which he plays a lovable doof of a protagonist. He, he has also been in literally everything else. He just voices most of video games from like 2012 to 2016, I think. The voice of Ellie appears in the Avengers films as like a really minor character that does come back a little bit. There's the waitress that Captain America saves at the end of uh, the first Avengers film, who then gets interviewed on TV and recurs a little bit later. That's hmm. played by her. And the guy who voices Joel also appears in the Uncharted series in the later games as Nathan Drake's brother. Um, A few other ones I have. There's a character called Ish that we mentioned a little bit earlier. 
who um, arrives on a boat, which is noted as being a reference to Moby Dick. Mm-hmm. But he is apparently also intended to represent Isherwood Williams from the 1949 post-apocalyptic novel by George Stewart, in which he sets up a school and teaches a community. He's one of the few people that we learn about through artifacts that seems to still be alive at the end of the game. Or at least not explicitly dead. Yeah. The last note that we get about him is that he and a woman and a couple of the children from his group did escape and got as far as a nearby town and we don't see their bodies, which is often a thing that we see. Neil Druckmann, the director, creator guy, apparently did say that there was intended to be a note referencing-ish in the Left Behind DLC found in the Colorado Mall that Ellie is in, but they decided to take it out because it was considered too coincidental. So it's personally my hope that he'll show up in some form or another in um, the sequel. This is one of my favourite little tidbits. The person that uses the word fuck the most in the game is Ellie. That doesn't surprise me. Uh, The word itself is said 143 times in the game, and she's responsible for 53 of them. Yeah, she does say fuck a lot. The surprise reveal of The Last of Us was almost completely ruined. Naughty Dog had originally planned for The Last of Us to be announced before Uncharted 3, but the announcement got pushed back, and they had put an Easter egg into Uncharted 3 that got left in the game. You can find a newspaper that says, Scientists are still struggling to understand deadly fungus. Uh, fortunately, nobody noticed. Hmm. Okay, I think that's it for the fun facts. We have put quite a few things in the show notes for this episode. You can also find our social media handles there. You can also email us at unramblingspodcast at gmail.com if you have any questions, suggestions, or comments. We appreciate any uh, ratings and reviews wherever you listen to your podcast, especially if that happens to be Apple Podcasts. And that's all for this week. Thanks for listening to Unramblings. We hope that you'll join us next time. Uh, We forgot to talk about how Sarah was refrigerated and how much that's bullshit.